Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. This is Danielle Town. And welcome to the Invested Podcast, where we're going to be talking for the next few minutes about how reasons why you should get invested in your financial life, meaning you take over control of your money instead of giving over control to fund managers, exchange traded funds, um, advisors who do it for you. You, uh, We're going to make an argument here that first, you really need to do this for a multiple of reasons, including moral reasons, and, and, and second, for financial reasons, because you'll do far better, we believe, on your own. And third, because it's not rocket science and you can do it, and we're going to show you the ways to do it. There we go. Wow. <laughs> that was a good little summary, Dad. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, we talk about how thinking about your money and, and handling your money yourself creates a more invested person in the world. And I know that's what I'm looking for. I mean, I would much rather hand my money over to somebody else, let's be honest. But I also would much rather like never brush my teeth again. And <laughs> I have to do that. So <laughs> and, it, and in general, just for everybody who's jumping into the, the 60th some podcast here, and you're just climbing in to the latest podcast and hoping you can figure out what we're doing. Um, let me just introduce ourselves real briefly. I'm uh, I'm a guy that's been investing basically family money for the last 30 years, 30, wow, 30, more than 30, 35 now, um, 35 oh, years. Oh, you're not that old, Dad. Don't worry. <laughs> it gets... Let's say like, let's say 31, 31 years, Okay. And, 29 uh, years. And, and I wrote a book about it, about this process that I that I learned from my teacher who learned from Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, this group of value investors that were taught by Ben Graham. So we're in this in this family of investors that people call value investors. And we're explaining uh, how we invest within that paradigm. And um, I wrote a couple of books about it, and and I've spoken about it around the country many many times. And Danielle, let me uh, Danielle, I'll let you introduce yourself briefly. So I am your daughter, yes. and. And that is that is the genesis of this podcast. <laughs> um, I'm an attorney and I work with emerging companies in venture capital and I have generally no interest in the financial world beyond that. And I love working with small entrepreneurial private companies and, um, and have never worked with public companies whatsoever. But I realized at some point I kind of should figure out what on earth I'm doing with my money. And I said to you, Dad, what on earth should I do with my money? And you said, you should invest it yourself. And I said, no, I don't want to do that. <laughs> and then I thought, well, you know what? If we start a podcast, a lot of other wait, people... Wait, would... let, me, let me jump right in here because this is exactly what you did when I, su when, when I suggested you learn to change a tire. <laughs> and you've forgotten. And then when along comes a flat tire and now you wish... You had learned, and you basically called me up and go, Dad, why didn't you teach me to change my tire? And I said, no, I tried. No, that has never happened. What happened is that I paid for AAA, and <laughs> yeah. I called AAA. Yeah, and then you asked me why you didn't. Okay, so go on. <laughs> Unfortunately, the analogy here would be getting a financial advisor, which is not the same as AAA, and costs way more than AAA costs, so it's actually not a great analogy. But... I, um, I said to myself, 
if we actually had a podcast that we were, we were going to put up every week, it would force me to keep up with this conversation because I knew that I would start it with you and then I would stop. And so I figured if we had some, some good peer pressure, some peer pressure from the outside forcing us to continue, we would. And it worked. We do have good peer pressure from the outside. We do. And it does force us to keep t- discussing this every week. And now, over a year later, over a year, congratulations, Dad. We've done way more than a year's worth of podcasts, actually. And um, here we are. We, we have so much to talk about. It's no longer an issue. Like, I'm no longer, I, I get excited to talk about it every week, frankly. And I'm getting more interested as we go. And I'm getting more invested in the world. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. And what we're finding is that something that started as a very simple thing remains in one way a simple thing and then sort of unpacking it becomes, you know, almost a, almost a lifetime process. You know, in a sense, I think every investor, including Warren Buffett, continues to learn and continues to read. And, um, and Charlie Munger, his partner, said that, you know, the, the thing that we all have in common is that we all read a lot. And, and that means you continue to grow, you continue to learn. And that's why I love Danielle's idea, which she taught me, that this is a bit like a yoga practice. It's a bit like something, uh, you know, you, you seek perfection and it, you will never arrive there. But it, it is the journey that you're actually after, not the goal. So it's yeah. a beautiful yeah, thing. That's and a it, great way to say it. It's a, and I love it. I love the idea that I've been in a practice for 30 years. I didn't know I was in. Not a practice like a law practice or something. It's a practice like yoga. Like something, you seek perfection and, and you are, you're going to be short of perfection. But in the process, you accomplish some amazing things in your life um, with yoga, right? You become more physically fit. You become much more flexible and less injury prone. Um, in some ways, you become stronger spiritually. Uh, you become stronger as a disciplined person, not to mention any of the sort of esoteric sides of yoga. And that's a little bit like what's going on here, except this is way better because, <laughs> <laughs> because you, you, you're never going to get rich practicing yoga, but you can get rich practicing what we call rule one style investing or, or sort of deep value investing. By the way, I've been thinking about that term, and I think I like the term deep value investing cool. because it, it indicates a difference from the value. So this is what we've discussed a number of times for people who are new is that value investing in the old you know 1930s sense was, correct me when I'm wrong here, was buying several hundred stocks at a given time and hoping uh, that were in some way undervalued, right? And hoping that some percentage of those would go up and not looking at all at the company's management or intrinsic business or really anything to do. It was just like price versus value. Is that right? No, 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 no. You, you have Ben Graham and uh, basically wrote the book on, on this and you look deeply into uh, the nature of the business and what's going on there. Um, but well, you're still buying so many. How is that any different than what Warren Buffett does? Well, Warren Buffett's buying 10 things and Ben Graham bought 200. Yeah, but that's a, just a numerical difference. No, it's a I thought giant. you were saying that Warren Buffett has a different style. He does. And it, 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 what Ben was doing was hedging his downside 
by having a lot of companies. In other words, diversification in his strategy was a necessary part of the strategy because he was looking deeply into the numbers on these companies and buying them very cheap. Um, and he called them cigar butts. The trouble is some of those cigar butts did not have any free puffs left in them. They were toast. And he didn't often know which ones those were. Because he was not looking at the business itself or its management or its competitive advantages, right? No, because he was doing this in the depression and some of these and these companies were available to be purchased for a lower price than the net cash they had on their balance sheets. In other words, theoretically, if you bought the whole company, you could immediately shut it down and walk away with a profit immediately. Okay. So this was a dire sort of economic time. And because of that, Ben didn't have a crystal ball that could look out 10 years with a great deal of comfort and say, these guys will recover for sure. Many companies were not going to be able to recover for sure. So he did a deep research. In fact, his book in 1934 is still in print called Securities Analysis. And it is the Bible of value investing. It's like two inches thick of the work you'd have to do deep into the numbers. So the the Buffett strategy started there, but it evolved really quickly. Um, and in part because he met Charlie Munker and Charlie is genius and just said, look, Warren, we need to go another way because it's no longer the Depression and it's no longer World War II and post-war. Now the world is shaping up in a different way. And because of that, we can do much better than the market by buying a few companies that are really wonderful businesses, businesses we can have a high degree of expectation that they will be in business 20 years from now. Businesses. So this, this is the part where I'm missing the distinction because okay. it sounded to me like you just said that Ben Graham also bought wonderful businesses. No. He just bought 300 of them. He bought crappy businesses. He bought 300 of them. So that's why that's where I get this impression that he was not looking at the management and was not looking at the competitive advantage. He was buying crappy businesses. Oh, I think I see what you mean by looking at. He was most definitely literally looking at whether it was a good business or not. Um, but only numerically, the only but, the difference between price and value. Yeah, because at that point in time, um, it was very difficult to say for sure that any business was going to survive. Right. I mean, it's like hard to know. Um, uh -huh. And so while he was looking at it, he was not basing his investment on that fact. Is that what you mean? Oh, yeah, of course that's what I mean. Okay, well, I didn't understand. I thought you you meant he wasn't even looking at it. He was definitely looking at it. Well, why would you ever bother to look at something and then not have it count into your your decision about investing or in it or not? Because at that point in time, there might have been, let's just say, 8,000 public businesses, all of whom were in some form of dire dire straits. And what you're looking to do is to get the best of that bunch that are yeah. super on sale. And yeah. so he wants a company that's likely to survive, obviously, because the odds of those companies being around uh, to realize their real value is much higher if it has the qualities that it, it needs to survive. But he was buying companies that were so deeply on sale that their survival had to be in question from the outset. It, it, they had to have so an issue. It's, maybe it's a maybe it's a matter of degree. So it sounds like it sounds to me like what you're saying is that he was choosing, let's say, 300 of the best companies out of the 8,000. But a number of those 300 
let's say 290 of those 300 probably would not make it into Warren Buffett's criteria for being a wonderful company that he would want to buy. Correct. I I think that's about right. I would change one thing. He wasn't finding the best 300 companies out of the 8,000 because the best companies out of the 8,000 were never on sale. Got it. You're right. Okay. Distinction. The best that were on sale. Yes. But that would be the same for Warren Buffett, too. He's not buying companies that are not on sale. Right. He's buying the best companies that are on sale. But the difference is Buffett's insisting that these are actually wonderful businesses. Ben wasn't insisting on that. He was buying, literally buying cigar butts, but the best of them that he could find. And the okay. problem the problem with his strategy was that by 1955, it no longer worked. It was no longer effective because um, the the economy and the, and the world were not in dire straits any longer. And, and so people had started buying stocks and the price of things went up. And you could no longer find companies available very often. I mean, they, occasionally one comes along even today um, in this sort of net cash position, right? You'd, nobody's going to sell you anything that would survive in that, in that, in that uh, dire price. So um, as Buffett started diving deeper into this, he, he started realizing it's getting harder to grow a big company. In other words, uh, invest hundreds of millions of dollars because it's really hard to find those things that Ben used to find. You know, they were, they were everywhere back in 1936. And in 1956, they were not to be found. And, mm-hmm. and so the, the focus went different in a couple of major, major ways. The first one is that instead of buying 200 things that were pretty much, many of them were fairly crappy businesses, um, Charlie was recommending Warren focus on just a small number of things that were really, really good businesses. And Meaning they used the same criteria, yeah. but the Buffett-Munger standards were a lot higher. Yes. True? True. That, okay. that it, they decided they would be better off buying 10 things than 200 things. And that, that what happens immediately from that decision is you realize you're not going to be buying things very often. Mm-hmm. So you can't see Ben would buy them and roll them out in six months or, or a year. He would he'd sell them off or they'd go broke, whatever. So mm-hmm. he wasn't holding on to much for very long. Warren and Charlie realized, wow, it, it's much better if you get a great business to just hold on to it because it cranks out this high return on equity. And what follows is the stock price keeps cranking up. And And Charlie once said that, you know, you, you take out the 15 top investments that they ever made and they end up with just a middle of the road rate of return. It's wow. it's all yeah. about those top 15. And um, and so Warren's view is if you wanted to follow what what we do is you should think that you're going to have a punch card with 20 punches in it like you'd get from Subway or something. And that's all you get. You get 20 punches for your whole life. You get to click a hole in 20 spots on that card, and then you're done buying stocks. And if you thought that way, you're now starting to think the way Warren and Charlie think. They, okay. you, you only get 20. Then you're going to be very careful. Using the same criteria as Ben Graham, just keeping the standards of those criteria very, very high, such that most companies are not even eligible. 
Yep. So Ben Ben was obviously understood the concept of moat. He basically invented it. Um, <laughs> and but, say what moat is again? And moat is this intrinsic characteristic the company has that makes it hard to compete with it. My hmm. my best example is Burlington Northern Railroad. Advantage. Yeah. Sorry. You've got go railroad. Ahead. You have railroad tracks that go from Los Angeles to Chicago. And if you want to compete with Burlington Northern, let's say I decided I thought that was a great business to be in, um, I wanted to challenge them for their their near monopoly on China shipping containers going to Chicago on their trains. What I would have to do is get new tracks. So I would have to go to Long Beach and I would have to buy the right of way to put railroad tracks in from there to Chicago. From Long Beach, I've got to go through Los Angeles, out through San Bernardino, out across <laughs> the, 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 you know, the desert from the protected toads. You know, I mean, <laughs> can you imagine the nightmare? I got to go through BLM land that's with cat. Can you even imagine the nightmare that it's such a huge intrinsic characteristic of, of Burlington Northern that no one even thinks about doing it? You might as well just pay up and buy all of Burlington Northern than to even think about doing that. And so that's that's a, a, a really intense example of of an intrinsic something intrinsic to the company. It's baked into the company's very being that protects it. And that's what we really want in our in our companies that we're going to buy. We love okay, that. So Graham was looking for companies that had that but probably didn't find many. Right, there were very, the companies he was finding didn't often have in that, so he would he would buy many, 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 many companies. Okay. Right. So Warren and Charlie said, hey man, we can find these now, but, but we have to be way more patient. So the vast majority of value investors cannot afford that sort of patience. Their clients won't stick Got around. It. So they're so buying. It's also a question of, what do you call that? Time horizon, time. Yeah. How much time you have? How much time you There's have to deliver performance? Yeah, you yeah. have your compounded rate of return over a short period of time. And fund managers, almost without exception, are judged on a very short period of time by the pension funds that are putting money into these guys that are managing billions of dollars. Those pension fund managers need to see a result in a short time, a quarter, two quarters, three quarters. Don't be giving me worse than the market in a, over three or four quarters because I'll fire you and I'll... Right. I'll move my money to somebody that's more consistently at the market or above. And so there's yeah. this very it's called the intrinsic. Sorry, it's called the institutional imperative. And you have to manage somebody else's money to ever feel it. But it's very real. As soon as you manage other people's money, you feel pressure to do well right now. Or the opposite. You put your money with somebody else and you're like, you better do well. Are you doing well? How are you doing? <laughs> there you go. Oh, you didn't do well last time. Wait a second. You didn't do well two quarters in a row. Wait a second. You didn't do well three quarters in a row. <laughs> I'm out of here. Not good. Yeah, exactly. I'm out of here. And so you have to be in control of your capital to exercise this remarkable, effective and simple investing strategy that Buffett and Munger dreamed up back in the late 1950s and which has resulted in an outperformance of the stock market that's just simply astonishing by virtually all of the people who practice this um, that Buffett has identified. I mean, the rates of return are astonishing, Danielle. They go like from 18% is on the lowish side to 34% on the highish side. And that range, 
I mean, considering that the stock markets, including dividends, is like 9% historically, 7% actually over all of this long time, um, you know, getting 18 to 20 to 36 is, or 34 is just what that does to you is it takes $10,000, it would have become 300,000, it makes it into 60 million or 70 million <laughs> or 100 million. It's just such an exponentially higher rate of return over a long period of time that it's astonishing, right? Yeah. But if you can... Well, I... Go ahead. Well, one last thing, and that is that if you can control your capital as an individual investor, you are in the envious position of these very rare fund managers like Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, David Einhorn, uh, you know, Alan Meacham, a handful of people, really, literally, I think I could count them on fingers and toes, who have so much control of their capital that they can they can implement these incredible strategies because you have to be able to sit in cash for a couple of years and do nothing. You have to be able to. Nothing else will get you to these kinds of returns except the willingness to do nothing for a long period of time and wait patiently for what Ben Graham called the inevitable market fluctuation that's going to put this stuff on sale. And that's, that's what we do. It's that simple, but that's hard for the professionals. It's hard for everyone. <laughs> okay, fair enough. And, it and, is hard when you have made the decision, as some people listening to this have, to manage your own money, and you've done your homework, and you've found your companies that you like, and you have to sit there and wait for the prices to get to the point where you're willing to buy it. That is very difficult. It gets, it's not difficult except for I think really it's just the way people are thinking because they're brand new to this and they kind of want proof that they're not on some futile, you know, goose, wild goose chase that's going to result in nothing. And, you know, I've been doing this for 30 years and I can tell you it is emphatically the only way to do it. And it's really not hard once you've gotten on to the idea that it works. But you need to go through a few cycles where the market's gone up and then crashed and then you've picked up companies that you like at that bottom point, and you get to see how quickly they start to make money for you. You guys haven't been in that market for the last years and years while we've been even teaching this. It's been in this helium stock market driven by Federal Reserve policy virtually around the world to inf yeah. inflate, you know? And so we have, and part of it's being driven by the fact that first world com companies are moving a lot of their uh, their labor costs to third world countries and we're seeing an oppressive deflation in first world companies that doesn't isn't backed up with consumption right you deflate everything you start to have low consumption because people aren't making money and so hopefully that's going to change in the future uh, if we can get a different set of policies that will start to provide some support for wage rises we're going to see the economy take off but until that happens we're going to be stagnating, and the Federal Reserve will continue to flood the money, the, the world with money, uh, in order well, to, exactly to get us out right. of this. I think as we're learning this, you need some proof to build your confidence. You need some experience to build your confidence. And when you've done the work, but have not seen the results because you're following what you're supposed to do and, and waiting to buy until it's the right moment, until it's the right price. It's really, it, it's just it's just frustrating. So I think you're exactly right. Like one, you're not building the confidence that comes from experience by doing nothing. 
And two, it's, it's just like you have the energy going, like you've spent time out of your life to do this. You've got that energy and then the energy has nowhere to go. I think it's both of those things that make it, for me, this is something I find extremely difficult. Like I feel really jittery about it. I feel like I'm just sort of sitting here, like shaking my leg and, and you know, needing to like do some yoga to calm down because because you're ready to go. Like you're at the starting line and you want to press the gas pedal and take your foot off the brake. And you're at that moment where you're just waiting for it. Yep. It's hard. It's really, and it's really like, I'm not a patient person. And so I think maybe I find it more difficult than other people, but it's really, really hard to, to just settle down and, and feel like you're just letting time pass and doing nothing. I find that really difficult. Well, we have, I, I'm not going to change the focus of our, discussions as we go forward, but I, I will say that um, that there are ways of doing trading that with a small amount of capital, or if you're starting with a very small amount of capital with, you know, then you might as well do it with all your capital. There are ways of doing trading that can be very active and very fun and, and have a high, really nicely high return um, that we do use and we do teach. But I don't want to make that the focus of the podcast because we're so far from a complete total grasp of this concept of investing. I don't want to give ourselves a way out here to yeah. to start discussing something else. I want to stay stuck in this discipline and this practice because this is a practice. You must be able to sit quietly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that is that is that is a really good way to say it. Right? That is true. And I'm, I'm, I know that you've mentioned these ways of trading to me, and I frankly just kind of avoid it because I feel like it will distract me a little bit from learning the basics, and that's what I'm really focused on. But maybe you tell people where they can find out more about this, this okay, sort so, of trading stuff. So just real briefly, um, we, we do a class for three days, um, and everyone listening to this podcast who wants to come to it can come for free. It's something we used to charge three or $4,000 for really worldwide. And now we give you guys a freebie to come and learn so that you can see that we can teach you and, and that, uh, that you can learn this stuff. And in that class, we do dive into cash flow strategies using uh, some tools that we have. And, and they're very effective and they are based on this style of investing and all of the things you're learning in this podcast are fundamental to doing those trades properly. But it's more active and it's very, very cool because people, a lot of people come to this class who don't have any money and are, you know, a thousand, two thousand dollars and they're trying to figure out how to get it all going. Um, and one of the great books that you guys can read about this stuff was written by Monesh Pabrai uh, that I think we've talked about before called Dondo Investing. But the essence of Dondo Investing is a story about the Patel family who came to America and risked all of their capital, which was not much. And it is the, the, the fact that it is not much capital to risk that allows you to do it. It allows you to take risk with capital. And what they learned is to take a risk where your downside is very low, but your upside is very high. And this is what Manesh preaches. This is what the Patel family has used to become wealthy around the world. And this is what we do when we, when, when we end the class by the end of the third day you'll have moved into these strategies. But emphatically, I don't want to get us over into that in this podcast because it absolutely pulls the cork from the tub, right? I'm trying to fill this tub with knowledge and and those strategies send you off on a, on a tangent. 
So I, I want to stick yeah. with it here, you know? I do too. I do too. And just quickly tell people where they can go to find out about the workshop. So uh, you, you go to, um, okay, where do you go? You go to. Oh, stop it. Investedpodcast.com. Yes. And there's a button that says something. I forget what. One of these days you'll remember what our website is. I know. Not my strong point. But <laughs> go there and hit that button. It'll take you into information about coming to the course. The courses are filled up, uh, uh, you know, a couple of months ahead. And people, because people are coming from around the world having read rule number one and payback time, they're coming. And, and because of this podcast, people are coming in from St. Petersburg. We just finished one last weekend. Danielle, we had people from St. Petersburg in Russia, from really? Shanghai in China, wow. from Chile down in Santiago, from um, Sao Paulo, Brazil. Um, let's see, there's guys Pretty from Mexico. Pretty impressive, Dad. We actually now, had people as far away as Canada. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so investedpodcast.com. Um, and this podcast is not a sales thing. The workshop is not a sales thing. I could care less if you go to the workshop. That's not what this is about, but um, I do give dad a little bit of time to describe it. And, and I, will, I will say one more thing because people always come to this waiting for the other shoe to drop. Uh, when are you going to sell me something? When are you going to tell me that, uh, you know, if you really want to learn, then you got to do ABC, which is such crap. And we don't do that. Um, there will be no selling. You will learn. It's absolutely completely oriented toward learning for all three days. And when you come, expect to work from 9 o'clock in the morning Friday till midnight from 8.30 in the morning Saturday until 11. And then we'll let you go at 3 o'clock on Sunday. And we absolutely send you home knowing how to invest. So obviously, there's always work to be done afterwards. We give you tools to work on that later. But this will set you up properly um, if you like this podcast, we pack this workshop and take you deep because there's a lot we can't do on the podcast, right? We don't have our computers in front of you. You don't have a computer. You don't have a like we bring in 30 students who have been working with us for like four or five years who are there as volunteers who will be working with you in small groups during breakouts. So it's it's really fun. And it's really packed. And I love doing it once a month. And Danielle's telling me to shut up. So, OK, good. <laughs> I was not. <laughs> yes, you were. I do think everybody understands what you the workshop is. You started to do the eye point. roll. You started to do the <laughs> eye roll. <laughs> Only a tiny bit. All right. So listen, I, I think we re we really have, have uh, gone into some good information today. And um, we like sometimes to be kind of general about investing because you've got to keep your eye on the forest, right? We sometimes get down into the trees. We get down into the trees a lot in this podcast. Yeah. And we, we have a couple trees to talk about today still. Are we still going to talk about trees? Yeah. What time? Oh, wait, oh, wait, how, here's, what? here's my tree, first of all. Um, we, we mentioned last time that uh, you, or you mentioned last time, that there was this company, CF Industries, that recently was stopped from leaving the U.S. Um, when they wanted to move the company overseas. Right. So I looked it up. I promised everyone I would look it up. I looked it up. I just want to clarify. I don't think you were actually wrong. What you said was that they were stopped. I just want to be clear that in a legal sense, they were not stopped. Because when you said that, I thought, oh, that sounds like an antitrust case or something where like the Justice Department would literally stop a merger for the public interest. And that's not what's happened here. What happened here is that the Treasury Department released new regulations, which changed, they would have had to change the structure of the merger. And therefore, they decided to not merge. 
So they were not actually stopped by the government. I did. It's a legal point. It's a legal point. Now you're going to roll your eyes at me. I'm seriously one. doing an eye roll here because what the government did, the the very reason for this transfer of headquarters out of the United States into Netherlands was to avoid the onerous taxation in the United States. And this company could, by moving out of the, uh, to another country, be taxed by that country's rules, which are far to the advantage of the corporations compared to America. And what the Treasury Department did without any vote by the people of the United States or the Congress was to simply make a rule that eliminated that form of merger and therefore the other forms would not give you the tax break that you were looking for. So they're trying to, to basically keep corporations here for tax purposes so that they don't have to change our tax laws. America's corporations are the most heavily taxed corporations in the world. And we have to compete in the world. And so what our corporations do is start sending jobs overseas. They start to take advantage of NAFTA and TPP to send factories over into foreign nations where they can bring back the goods without tariff and get around the problem that they're having with the tax law and be as profitable as their foreign competitors. Which is their entire job and reason for existence. I have no problem with any of that. I do. I have huge problems with it. I don't I like don't. it. I don't. Well, yeah, yes, none of us like it. They should all stay in America. The end, yay. But that's just not reality. Companies have to be competitive with each other, and as long as they can move, they will. And what's happened here is called an inversion, which is they want to stay an American company, but have their headquarters overseas. And that's why people have a problem with it. And that's why Obama has a problem with it. Because if they were going to go actually be a Dutch corporation and have everything in the Netherlands, fine, the US can do nothing about that. But this was about keeping an American subsidiary, but changing the headquarters to another country and thereby being taxed by the other country. So that's where the, you know, people talk about loopholes. I don't really think that's a technical loophole, but um, but that's what people mean. Well, I'll tell you, you know, I I think that I have a different view of a corporate responsibility. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna look to John Mackey for for my guru. Well, this on is this a one. whole separate discussion, though. But it's all about what we're just talking about. About if these corporations are trying to duck onerous tax laws by chopping wages. Our our middle class suffers dramatically, and and because our middle class isn't consuming, the Federal Reserve starts to manipulate our currency and well, now our you're market. Getting, you're getting into though an, a public policy argument, which is entirely separate from the actual legal terms under which companies operate. Okay, fair enough. And fair using enough. the exact legal terms under which companies operate, they have to do everything they can in order to maximize their profit. That is their job. Now, no, whether or no, not, no, no, yes, it no, is. Trust no, me. No, yes, it is. No. Yes. Yes. <laughs> zip. <laughs> zip it. Zip it. <laughs> no. Now, now, whether or not they should consider other stakeholders in addition to profit maximization is a separate argument. And yet the statement still stands that it is their entire job to maximize profit as the very basis of corporate policy. If they choose to do other things as well, I think that's fantastic and I'm personally 
making my investment decisions around that. Did you but, learn that at NYU Law School? Oh, please. NYU Law School. What is that supposed to mean? The, like an incredibly liberal, the Constitution is a living document law school. Everything I just said is the most conservative thing you're going to hear from any lawyer ever. Oh, my gosh. Maybe so, but it's so dangerous. And, and Because when you say that, people believe it who run companies. And then they repeat it to their boards and the boards operate as if that is true. And that's why they do the horrible crap that they do, because they come to believe it. I don't know what to tell you, Dad. That's because my point is so well taken. That is not Thank true. You. No. <laughs> <laughs> I want these corporations I to understand. actually do know something about this. Something I about know it. you do, but I, I maybe this is me being emotional. I am a little bit of an expert on it. I know you are, and I may be being emotional here, but I expect the people who run my company to have a broader vision than just profit. And that's what I'm trying to say is you're completely within your rights to do that. And you can even take that to court. You can literally take that to court as a shareholder that you expected a company based on what they said, based on their goals, based on how they handle themselves in the past, based on how they handle their money. You can go to court and demand some kind of stakeholder action. But whether or not it is over profit maximization is a question that has not been decided by courts. Wow, this is way cool. I, am, I, I, I totally believe you. You know more about this than I do. I totally oh, believe you. Wow, that was easy. Well, I totally believe you. <laughs> and I, I, I will add one more thing, and that is that John Mackey, who basically has been pitching this idea of conscious capitalism, that it is in the nature, it, you, you must use morality to be a capitalist or the capitalism system will fail. I completely and, agree. And I so and John's point is in it's it's self-serving to do so. That it's yes. perfectly self-serving that corporations it's, that it's support, act it properly, makes corporations stronger to do so. Precisely. He's got a lot of proof in his books out that his book out there that corporations that have acted in this manner have actually improved their profitability dramatically. So Absolutely. these may not and, be exclusive arguments, I guess. They are a hundred percent non-exclusive. Yeah. No, I, I maybe I didn't make that point very well. Uh, they are not exclusive. It's just, it's kind of like with the merger thing that we were saying, the inversion of CS Industries. Like, there's a difference between the literal legal tenants under which companies operate and how they really should operate for their best interest. How they really should operate for their best interest is by following stakeholder interests by being very clear about conscious capitalism and what they want to do consciously in the world and by making that an integral part of their business plan and their business model and thereby maximizing profit better than a company that does the exact same business without any of those things. Not to mention they will get my money if they are a great exactly. company when they go on sale. And, exactly. I, and I think that's, that's wonderful. And, and so I think bringing morality into it in a way that matches up with with what you were just saying about the the fundamental purpose of a corporation that works for me i can get together on those two ideas yeah i think it's i think it's actually really important and i think it's a really cool thing from a legal perspective how 
much the the conscious capitalism idea has shown up in the last 10 years really and in such a short amount of time has changed everything in the business world i mean there are now cases about profit maximization this is a major thing and it's really really interesting and it's really changing the way companies operate and i think it's fantastic and i think as investors it's our responsibility to support that i mean you say every now and then vote your values with your money and i think that's what we all need to do i think so too which brings us full circle and we'll wrap up and that is that we want to vote our values with our money, but we want to uh, also have high rates of return and be able to retire comfortably in our lives and have low risk investments in our in our portfolios. And that all requires an education on what's a wonderful business um, and whether it's on sale. And that's why we spend so much time on this. But ultimately, we would love to change the world. I mean, this podcast is about a revolution of investing strategy where your values get voted, not ignored and that's how we yeah. change the world I, i'm excited by that i think i think we are moving it in that direction i really really like that about what we're doing here i do too i love it well i'm with just that, gonna say I'm... that none of this is legal advice at all you should talk to your own attorney i don't know your situation if you are starting a company if you're running your own company don't listen to me i'm not your attorney and everything i might have just said might be totally wrong you know that's very, very well said. And we should add another disclaimer for all the stocks and ideas and the thoughts and all that. This is for education and entertainment only and, you know, heavy on the entertainment side. So don't, <laughs> don't go out we there. Hope. We, we hope. hope. We hope. So don't go out there and just start buying stuff because you heard it on here. It, you have to do your homework. And this is what this is all about is teaching you how the best investors do that kind of homework in the world. So ultimately, you will feel comfortable to both vote your values and create a portfolio for yourself that that is going to give you a great retirement. So with that, I think we're all done today. What do you think? Yeah, thanks, everybody. Yep. We're going to get into um, wrapping up valuation soon. Soon enough. I'm excited. That's kind of a joke here at the podcast. (laughs) What Danielle just said there. We We tend to drift a little bit sometimes. Keep saying that. All right. So until uh, next week, time to go play. See ya. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested, the Rule One podcast. If you like this episode, you can always get our show notes and more details and links to the resources we discussed at investedpodcast.com. Also, as long as you're online, head on over to investedpodcast.com slash workshop for details on an upcoming three-day live workshop that I'm hosting All you got to do is enter the special podcast code STOCKPILE, that's S-T-O-C-K-P-I-L-E, STOCKPILE, into the application form, and you guys can attend for free. So everything discussed on this show is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion, and it is not to be taken as investment advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I really do hope you've enjoyed it. So until next week, it's time to go play. See ya.